Chapter Twelve of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twelve: The Practice of Idleness. One. At ten minutes to eleven the next morning, Mr. Prohack rushed across the pavement and sprang head first into the original Eagle, now duly repaired, with the velocity and agility of a man long accustomed to the fact that seconds are more precious than sixpences, a minute than banknotes and Carthew slammed the door on him like a conjurer performing the final act of a trick before an audience of three thousand people. Mr. Prohack was late. He was late on this, the first full day of his career, as a consciously and scientifically idle man. Carthew knew that his employer was late, and certainly the people in his house knew that he was late. Mr. Prohack's breakfast in bed had been late, which meant that his suggestive and preposeful hour of newspaper reading was thrown forward and then he had actually been kept out of his own bathroom through the joint fault of Sissy and her mother, who had apparently determined to celebrate Sissy's definite release from the dance-studio, and Mrs. Prohack's astonishing recover from traumatic neurasthenia, by a thorough visitation and reorganisation of the house and household. Those two, re-established in each other's affection, had been holding an inquisition in the bathroom, of all rooms, at the very moment when Mr. Prohack needed the same, with the consequence that he found the bath empty instead of full, and the geezer not even lighted. Yet they well knew that he had a highly important appointment at the tailor's at 10.45, followed by other just as highly important appointments. The worst of it was that he could not take their crime seriously, because he was on such intimate and conspiratorial terms with each of them separately. On the previous evening he had exchanged wonderful and rather dangerous confidences with his daughter, and further on, in the night, he and her mother had decided that the latter's fantastic excursion to the Grand Babylon Hotel should remain a secret. And Sissy, as much as her mother, had taken advantage of his helplessness in the usual unscrupulous feminine manner. They went so far as to smile quasi-maternally at his boyish busyness. Now, no sooner had Carthew slammed the door of the eagle and got into the driving seat, than a young woman, a perfect stranger to Mr. Prohack, appeared, and through the open window asked in a piteous childlike voice if Mr. Prohack was indeed Mr. Prohack, and having been informed that this was so, expressed the desire to speak with him. Mr. Prohack was beside himself with annoyance and thwarted energy. Was the entire universe uniting against the execution of his programme? "'I have a most important appointment,' said he, raising his hat and achieving politeness by an enormous effort and if your business is urgent, you'd better get into the car. I'm going to Conduit Street. She slipped into the car like a snake, and Carthew, beautifully unaware that he had two passengers, simultaneously drove off. If a snake, she was a very slim, blushing, and confused snake, short, too, for a python, and she had a turned-up nose, and was quite young. Her scales were stylish, and although certainly abashed, apprehensive, and timorous, she yet had, about her delicate mouth, the signs of terrible determination, of ruthlessness, of an ambition that nothing could thwart. Mr. Prohack might have been alarmed, but fortunately he was getting used to driving in closed cars with young women, and so could keep his nerve. Moreover, he enjoyed these experiences, being a man of simple tastes and not too analytical of good fortune when it came his way. "'It's very good of you to see me like this,' said the girl, in the voice of a rapid brook with a pebbly bed. 
My name is Winstock, and I've called about the car. The car? What car? The motor-car accident at Putney, you know. Ah, yes. Just so, just so. You are the owner-driver of the other car. Yes. I think you ought to have seen my wife. It was really she who is the owner of this car. As you are aware, I wasn't in the accident myself, and I don't know anything about it. Besides, it's entirely in the hands of the insurance company and the solicitors. You are employing a solicitor, aren't you? Oh, yes. Then I suppose it's by his advice that you've come to see me. Well, I'm afraid it isn't. What? cried Mr. Prohack. If it isn't by his advice, you may well be afraid. Do you know you've done a most improper thing? Most improper. I can't possibly listen to you. You may go behind your lawyer's back, but I can't. And also there's the insurance company. Mr. Prohack lifted the rug which had fallen away from her short skirts. "'I think solicitors and companies and things are so silly,' said Miss Winstock, whose eyes had not moved from the floor-mat. "'Thank you.' The thank you was in respect to the rug. "'So they are,' Mr. Prohack had agreed. "'That was why I thought it would be better to come straight to you.' For the first time she glanced at him a baffling glance, a glance that somehow had the effect of transferring some of the apprehension in her own breast to that of Mr. Prohack. "'Well,' said he, in a departmental tone, recalling Whitehall, "'will you kindly say what you have to say?' "'Can I speak confidentially?' Mr. Prohack raised his hands and laughed in what he hoped was a sardonic manner. "'Ah! I give you young women up,' he murmured. "'Yes, I give you up. You're my enemy. Where is law?' "'And you want to talk confidentially? "'How can I tell whether I can let you talk confidentially "'until I've heard what you're going to say?' "'Oh, I was only going to say that I'm not really the owner-driver of the car. "'I'm personal secretary to Mr. Carroll Quire, and it's really his car. "'You see, he has three cars, but as there's been such a fuss about waste lately, "'and he's so prominent in the anti-scondominia campaign, "'he prefers to keep only one car in his own name.' "'You don't mean to sit there and tell me you're talking about the Secretary for Foreign Affairs?' "'Yes, of course. Who else? You know he's on the continent at present. He wouldn't take me with him, because he wanted to create an effect of austerity in Paris. That's what he said. And I must get this accident affair settled up before he comes back, or he may dismiss me. I don't think he will, because I'm a cousin of the late Lady Queenie Paul. That's how I got the place. But he may. And then where should I be? I was told you were so kind and nice. That's why I came.' "'I'm not kind, I am not nice,' remarked Mr. Prohack in an acid tone, but laughing to himself, because the celebrated young statesman, Mr. Carroll Quire, bald at thirty-five, was precisely one of the ministers who, during the war, had defied and trampled upon the Treasury. He now almost demoniacally contemplated the ruin of Mr. Carroll Quire. "'You've made a serious mistake in coming to me. Unfortunately, you cannot undo it.' Be good enough to understand that you have not been talking confidentially. Miss Winston ought to have been intimidated and paralysed by the menacing manner of the former terror of the departments. But she was not. Please, please, Mr. Prohack, she said calmly, don't talk in that strain. I distinctly told you I was talking confidentially, and I'm sure I can rely on you, unless all that I've heard about you is untrue, which it can't be. I only want matters to be settled quietly and when Mr. Quire returns he will pay anything that has to be paid, uh, if it isn't too much. My chauffeur asserts that you have told a most unnaughty untruth about the accident. You say that he ran into you, whereas the fact is that he was nearly standing still, while you were going too fast, 
and you skid it badly into him off the tram-lines. And he's found witnesses to prove what he says. I may have been a little mistaken, Miss Winstock admitted with light sadness. I won't say I wasn't. You know how you are in an accident. I've never been in an accident in my life, Mr. Prohack objected. If you had, you'd sympathise with me. At this moment the eagle drew up at the desired destination in Conduit Street. Mr. Prohack looked at his watch. I'm sorry to seem inhospitable, he said, but my appointment is extremely important. I cannot wait. Can I wait? Mrs. Winstock suggested. I'm quite used to waiting for Mr. Carroll Quire. If I might wait in the car till you came out, you see, I wanted to come to an understanding. I don't know how long I shall be. That doesn't matter, truly. I haven't got anything else in the world to do, as Mr. Carroll Quire is away. Mr. Prohack left Miss Winstock in the car. The establishment into which Mr. Prohack disappeared was that of his son's tailors. He slipped into it with awe, not wholly because the tailors were his son's tailors, but in part because they were tailors to various august, or once august, personages throughout Europe. Till that day Mr. Prohack had bought his clothes from an insignificant though traditional tailor in Maddox Street, to whom he had been taken as a boy by his own father. And he had ordered his clothes hastily, negligently, anyhow, in intervals snatched from meal hours, or on the way from one more important appointment to another more important appointment. Indeed, he thought no more of ordering a suit than of ordering a whisky and soda. Nay, he had on one occasion fallen incredibly low, and his memory held the horrid secret forever. On one occasion he had actually bought a ready-made suit. It had fitted him, for he was slimish and of a good stock size, but he had told nobody, not even his wife, of this shocking defection from the code of true British gentlemanliness, and he had never repeated the crime, the secret would die with him. And now he was devoting the top of the morning to the commandment of a suit. The affair was his chief business, and he had come to it in a great car whose six cylinders were working harmoniously for nothing else, and with the aid of an intelligent and experienced and expert human being whose sole object in life that morning was to preside over to Mr. Prohack's locomotion to and from the tailors. 2. Mr. Prohack perceived that he was only beginning to comprehend the wonder of existence. The adepts of the tailors, however, seemed to think nothing wonderful in the matter. They showed surprise that he had written to make an appointment with a particularly adept named Melchizedek, who had been casually mentioned weeks earlier by Charles as the one man in London who really comprehended waistcoats. They took it as a matter of course that Mr. Prohack had naught else to do with the top of the morning but order clothes, and that while he did so he should keep a mature man and a vast and elaborate machine waiting for him in the street outside. And Mr. Melchizedek's manner alone convinced Mr. Prohack that what he had told his family, and that what he had told Miss Winstock in the car, was strictly true, and not the invention of his fancy, namely, the appointment was genuinely of high importance. Mr. Melchizedek possessed the strange gift of condescending majestically to Mr. Prohack while licking his boots. He listened to Mr. Prohack as to an autocrat, while giving Mr. Prohack to understand that Mr. Prohack knew not the first elements of sartorial elegance. At intervals he gazed abstractedly at the gold-framed and crowned portraits that hung on the walls, and at the inscriptions similarly framed and crowned and hung. And it was home in upon Mr. Prohack 
that the inscriptions in actual practice referred to Mr. Melchizedek, and that this same Melchizedek, fawning and masterful, had seen monarchs in their shirt-sleeves, and spoken to princes with pins in his mouth, and made marks in white chalk between the shoulder-blades of grand dukes, and that revolutions and cataclysms were nothing to Mr. Melchizedek. When Mr. Melchizedek had decided by hypnotic suggestion and magic power what Mr. Prohack desired in the way of stuffs and patterns, he led Mr. Prohack mysteriously to a small chamber, and a scribe followed them carrying pencil and paper, and Mr. Prohack removed, with assistance, his shabby coat and his waistcoat, and Mr. Melchizedek measured him in unexampled detail and precision, and the scribe, writing, intoned aloud all Mr. Prohack's dimensions and all the time Mr. Prack was asking in his heart, How much will these clothes cost? And he, once the terror of the departments, who would have held up the war to satisfy his official inquisitiveness on a question of price, he dared not ask how much the clothes would cost. He felt that in that unique establishment money was simply not mentioned. It could never be more than the subject of formal and stately correspondence. During the latter part of the operation, Mr. Prohack heard, outside in the shop, the sharp sounds of an imperial and decisive voice, and he was thereby well-nigh thunderstruck. And even Mr. Melchizedek seemed to be similarly affected by the voice, so much so that the intimate of sovereigns unaffectedly hastened the business of enduing Mr. Prohack into the shameful waistcoat and coat, and then, with a gesture of apology, passed out of the cubicle, leaving Mr. Prohack with the attendant scribe. Mr. Prohack, pricked by a fearful curiosity, followed Mr. Melchizedek, and the voice was saying, Mr. Prohack had cautiously approached. The moment had awkwardness, but Mr. Prohack owed it to himself to behave with all presence of mind. "'Hello, Charlie,' said he casually. "'Hello, Dad. How are you?' And Charlie, wearing the very suit in which he had left home for Glasgow, shook hands boyishly. Looking into his firm, confident eyes, Mr. Prohack realised, perhaps for the first time, that the fruit of his loins was no common boy. The mere fact that an out-of-work ex-officer precariously making a bit in motorcycle deals, he had dared to go to Melchizedek's firm for clothes, and that he was now daring to affront Melchizedek, this sole fact separated him from the ruck of sons. "'I warn you, Dad, that if you're ordering clothes here, you're ordering trouble.' Mr. Melchizedek's interjected remarks fitted to the occasion. The group dissipated. The males of the Prohack family could say nothing interesting to each other in such a situation. They could only pretend that their relations were purely normal, which they did quite well. "'I said, Ed, I'm awfully busy this morning. I can't stop now. I've telephoned the mater, and she's coming to the Grand Babylon for lunch, one-thirty. Sis, do, I think. Do come. You haven't got anything else to do.' boy murmured all this. "'Oh, haven't I? I'm just as busy as you are, and more.' However, Mr. Prohack accepted the invitation. Charlie went off in haste. Mr. Prohack arrived on the pavement in time to see him departing in an open, semi-racing car, driven by a mature, handsome, and elegant woman, with a chauffeur sitting behind. Mr. Prohack's mind was one immense interrogation concerning his son. He'd seen him, spoken with him, and— owing to the peculiar circumstances, learnt nothing whatever. Indeed, the mystery of Charlie was deepened. Had Charles 
hurried away in order to hide the mature handsome lady from his father? Mr. Brack might have moralised, but he suddenly remembered that he had a lady in his own car, and that the disparity between their ages was no less the disparity between the ages of the occupants of the car in which Charles had fled. 3. Turning to his own car, he observed with a momentary astonishment that Carthew, the chauffeur, leaning a little nonchalantly through the open off-window of the vehicle, was engaged in conversation with Miss Winstock. The astonishment passed when he reflected that as these two had been in the enforced intimacy of an accident together, they were necessarily on some kind of speaking terms. Before Carthew had noticed Mr. Prohack, Mr. Prohack noticed that Carthew's attitude to Miss Winstock showed a certain tolerant condescension, while Miss Winstock's girlish gestures were of a subtly appealing nature. Then, in an instant, Carthew, the easy male tolerator of inaccurate but charming young women, disappeared from the window, disappeared indeed entirely from the face of the earth, and a perfectly non-human, impassive automaton emerged from behind the back of the car, and stood attentive at the door, holding the handle thereof. Mr. Brohack, with a gift of dissimulation equal to Carthew's own, gave him an address in Bond Street. "'I have another very urgent appointment,' said Mr. Brohack to Miss Winstock, as he sat down beside her, and he took his diary from his pocket and gazed at it intently, frowning, though there was nothing whatever on its page except the printed information that the previous Sunday was the twenty-fourth after Trinity, and a warning, "'If you have omitted to order your new diary, it would be well to do so now, to prevent disappointment.' "'It's awfully good of you to have me here,' said Miss Winstock. "'It is,' Mr. Prohack admitted, "'and so far as I can see you've done nothing to deserve it. You were very wrong to get chatting with my chauffeur, for example.' I felt that all the time, but he has such a powerful individuality. He may have. What I pay him for is to drive my car, not to put his passengers into a semi-hypnotic state. Do you know why I am taking you about like this? I hope it's because you are kind-hearted. Not at all. Do you think I should do it if you were fifty, fat and a fright? <laughs> of course I shouldn't. And no one knows that better than you. I'm doing it because you're young and charming and slim and attractive and smart. Though forty-six, I am still a man. The chief difference between me and most other men is that I know and openly admit my motives. That's what makes me so dangerous. You should beware of me. Take note that I haven't asked you what you've been saying to Carthew, nor shall I ask him. Now what exactly do you want me to do? Only not to let the law case about the accident go any further. And are you in a position to pay the insurance company for the damage to my car? Oh, Mr. Carroll Quire will pay. Are you sure? Are you quite sure that Mr. Carroll Quire is not spending twice as much as his ministerial salary, that salary being the whole of his financial resources, except loans from millionaires who will accept influence instead of interest? I won't inquire whether Mr. Carroll Quire pays your salary regularly. If he does, it furnishes the only instance of regularity in the whole of his gorgeous career. If our little affair becomes public, it might ruin Mr. Carroquire as a politician. At the least it would set him back for ten years. And I am particularly anxious to ruin Mr. Carroquire. In doing so I shall accomplish a patriotic act. Oh, Mr. Prohack! Yes, Mr. Carroquire may be, probably is, a delightful fellow, but he is too full of brains, and he constitutes the gravest danger that has threatened the British Empire for a hundred years. Hence 
it is my duty to ruin him if I get the chance, and I've got the chance. I don't see how he could survive the exposure of the simple fact that while preaching anti-waste he's keeping motor-cars in the names of young women. The car had stopped in front of a shop, over whose door a pair of gilded animals like nothing in zoology were leaping amiably at each other. Miss Winstock began to search neurotically in a bag for a handkerchief. "'This is the scene of my next appointment,' Mr. Brohack continued. "'Would you prefer to leave me at once, or will you wait again?' Miss Winstock hesitated. "'You'd better wait,' Mr. Brohack decided. "'You'll be crying in fifteen seconds, and your handkerchief is sadly inadequate to the crisis. "'Try a little self-control, and don't let Carthew hypnotise you. "'I shan't be surprised if you've gone when I've come back.' The commissionaire was now holding open the door of the car. Uh, Carthew, said Mr. Prohack privily, after he got out, oblige me by imagining that during my absence the car is empty. Carthew quivered for a fraction of eternity, but it was exceedingly quick to recover. Yes, sir. The shop was all waxed parquetry, silks, satins, pure linen and pure wool, diversified by a few walking-sticks and a cuff-link or so. Faced by a judge-like middle-aged authority in a frock-coat, Mr. Brohack suddenly lost the magisterial demeanour which he exhibited to a defenceless girl in the car. He comprehended in a flash that suits of clothes were a detail in the existence of an idle man, and that neckties and similar supremacies alone mattered. "'I want a necktie,' he began gently. "'Certainly, sir,' said the judge. But the judge's eyes, fixed on Mr. Prohack's neck, said, I should just think you did. Life was enlarged to a bewildering, a maddening maze of neckties. Mr. Bragg considered in his heart that one of the needs of the day was an encyclopaedia of neckties. As he bought neckties he felt as foolish as a woman buying cigars. Any idiot could buy a suit, but neckties baffled the intelligence of the terror of the departments, though he had worn something in the nature of a necktie for forty years. The neckties which he bought inspired him with fear, the fear lest he might lack the courage to wear them. In a nightmare he saw himself putting them on in his bedroom and proceeding downstairs to breakfast, and then, panic-stricken, rushing back to the bedroom to change into one of his old neckties. And when he had bought neckties he apprehended that neckties without shirts were like butter without bread, and he bought shirts and then he surmised that shirts without collars would be indecent. And when he bought collars, a still small voice told him that the logical foundation of all things was socks, and that really he had been trying to build a house from the fourth story downwards. Fortunately, he had less hesitation about the socks, for he could comfort himself with the thought that socks did not jump to the eye as neckties did, and that by constant care their violence might even be forever concealed from the gaze of his household. He sighed with relief at the end of the sock episode, but he had forgotten braces, as to which he surrendered unconditionally to the frock-coated judge. He brooked the most astounding braces, for none but Eve would see them, and he could intimidate Eve. "'Shall we make you a quarter of a dozen pairs to measure, sir?' This extraordinary question miraculously restored all Mr. Brohack's vanished aplomb. That at the end of the greatest war in the history of the earth, amid decapitated empires and cities of starvation, braces should be made to measure. This was too much for Mr. Prohack. 
who had not dreamed that braces ever had been made to measure. It shocked him back into sense. No, he said coldly, and soon afterwards left the shop. Miss Winstock, in the car, sat for the statue of wistful melancholy. Heavens, breathed Mr. Prohack to himself, the little thing is taking me seriously. With all her experience of the queer world and all her initiative and courage, she is taking me seriously. He was touched. His irony became sympathetic, and he thought, How young the young are! Her smile, as he rejoined her, had pathos in it. The totality of her was delicious. "'You cannot be all bad, Miss Winstock,' said he to her, after instructing the chauffeur, "'because nobody is. You are undisciplined. You do wild and rash things. You've already accomplished several this morning. But you have righteous instincts, though not often enough.' Of course, with one word to the insurance company, I could save you. The difficulty is that I could not save you without saving Mr. Carroll Quire also. And it would be very wrong of me to save Mr. Carroll Quire, for to save him would be to jeopardise the future of the British Empire. Because unless he is scotched, that man's frantic egotism and ruthless ambition will achieve political disaster for four hundred million human beings. I should like to save you. But can I weigh you in the balance against an empire? Can I, I say? No, answered Miss Winstock weakly, but sincerely. That's just where you're wrong, said Mr. Prohag. I can. And you are shamefully ignorant of history. Never yet when empire, any empire, has been weighed in the balance against a young and attractive woman, has the young woman failed to win. That is a dreadful fact, but men are thus constituted. Had you been a hag, I should not have hesitated to do my duty to my country. But as you are what you are, and sitting so agreeably in my car, I will save you, and let my country go. Oh, Mr. Prohack, you are very kind, but every one told me you were. No, I am a knave. Also, there, there is a condition. I will agree to anything. You must leave Mr. Carolquire's service. That man is dangerous, not only to empires. Entire environment is the very worst decently possible for a girl like you. Get away from it. If you don't undertake to give him notice at once, and withdraw entirely from his set, then I will ruin both you and him. But I shall starve, cried Miss Winstock. I shall never find another place without influence, and I have no more influence. Have the Winstocks no money? Not a penny. And have the Pauls no money? None for me. "'You are the idle programme-girl in the theatre, said Mr. Prohack. "'You will never starve. "'Excuse me for a few minutes. "'I have another very important appointment,' he added, "'as the car stopped in Piccadilly. "'After a quarter of an hour spent in learning that suits were naught, "'neckties were naught, shirts, collars, socks, and even braces were naught, "'but that hats alone made a man of fashion and idleness, "'Mr. Prohack returned to Miss Winstock and announced, "'I will engage you as my private secretary.' I need one very badly, indeed. In fact, I cannot understand how, with all my engagements, I have been able to manage without one so long. Your chief duties will be to keep on good terms with my wife and daughter, and not to fall in love with my son. If you are not too deeply preoccupied with my chauffeur, you may have noticed a young man who came out of the tailors just before I did. That was my son. Oh! exclaimed Miss Winstock. The boy who drove off in Lady Masulam's car? "'Was that Lady Masulam?' 
asked Mr. Prahak, before he had time to recover from the immense effect of hearing the startling, almost legendary name of Lady Massillum in connection with his son. "'Of course,' said Miss Winstock. "'Didn't you know?' Mr. Prohack ignored her pertness. "'Well,' he proceeded, having now successfully concealed his emotion, "'after having dealt, as I suggest, with my wife and children, you will deal with my affairs. You shall have the same salary as Mr. Carroll Quire paid, or forgot to pay. Do you agree or not?' "'I should love it,' replied Miss Winstock, with enthusiasm. "'What is your Christian name?' "'Mimi.' "'So it is, I remember now.' "'Well, it won't do at all. Never mention it again, please.' When he had accompanied Mimi to a neighbouring post-office, and sent off a suitable telegram of farewell to Mr. Carroll Quire in her name, Mr. Prohack abandoned her till the morrow, and drove off quickly to pick up his wife for the grand Babylon lunch. "'I am a perfect lunatic,' said he to himself. "'Must be the effect of riches. However, I don't care.' He meant— that he didn't care about the conceivable consequences of engaging Mimi Winstock as secretary. But what he did care about was the conjuncture of Lady Massulam and Charlie. End of chapter 12